Al Jazeera podcast. More than a million children in Gaza face daily attack from Israeli bombs and missiles. More than 3,000 youngsters have been killed in three weeks in a campaign backed by the West. What's the impact of Israel's war on Palestinian children? I'm James Bays, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests to discuss all this. In Amman, it's Tanya Haj Hassan, a pediatric intensive care doctor who's worked in Gaza. She co-founded Gaza Medic Voices, a social media account that shares first-hand testimonies from healthcare workers in the Strip. In occupied East Jerusalem, we have Jason Lee, the country director of Save the Children in the Occupied Palestinian Territories. And in London, Yara Eid, a war journalist who spent her childhood in Gaza. Thank you all for spending your time with us. Uh, If I can start with you, Jason, just to get some context here about the population of Gaza. 2.3 million people, uh, but about half are children. Is that right? Absolutely. You have the majority of people, the civilians living in Gaza now, being a child. Now, 1.4 million people have fled their homes. Half of them are children, and they are sheltering wherever they can. There is no place in Gaza that is safe right now. The bombardments, the airstrikes have continued in the north and the south, where the situation where the civilian death toll has hit more than 7,000 civilians, almost 3,000 of those being children. We are now having a situation where one child is killed every 13 minutes. That's one child every 13 minutes. The vast numbers of civilians that have been injured, more than 18 and a half thousand, again, one out of every three of those being a child. Every conflict disproportionately affects children. And we're seeing yet again in this conflict, children are paying the heaviest price with their lives, with being injured, and not to mention the scars that they will carry with them for the remainder of their lives. Dr. Tanya, you've worked in Gaza. Um, so we're talking about about a million children who are in Gaza under this relentless Israeli bombardment. And three weeks in, we have 3,000 children killed. That means Israel in three weeks has killed about 1,000 children a week. This is the fifth Gaza war. We saw horrors from those previous wars. Did you think it could ever get to this? I mean, I, I don't think anybody's mind should go there. It's it's really horrific. You know, a, a few days ago, UNICEF re- uh, released a report. This was 700 children ago. Since then, we've had 700 further children die. They said, and I quote, the situation in the Gaza Strip is a growing stain on our collective conscience. The rate of death and injuries of children is simply staggering. And I think that's that's the way m- most people who listen to the news in that region would react. It's, it's, it's staggering and it is a stain on our collective conscience. And, you know, these aren't just, just numbers. Um, you know, these, these are children with families, parents who love them, siblings, identities, hopes, dreams, subjectivity, and inner world. And there's a risk of reducing them to numbers because we get habituated to hearing these, these numbers. But, you know, just like Israeli children have biographies, families, identities, hopes, and those have been shared with us, these over 3,000 children. And I just want to clarify, 
That number is the children that were able to count in those statistics. There are over 900 children in the Gaza Strip that are missing right now, uh, or missing from the, that figure right now because they have not, their bodies have not been able to be retrieved from under the rubble. So we're talking about over 4,000 children likely at this point. And I, I, I completely agree with UNICEF. This is a growing stain on our collective conscience. Yara, these clearly aren't numbers for you. You grew up in the Gaza Strip. These are friends and family members. I've already lost 41 members of my family and two of my um, colleagues. Well, and I'm, from the can I first, f- f- first, can I please express my condolences? Uh, this is awful. And from the 41 members of my family, you know, um, 17 of them are children. And those children were really loved. You know, they were the light in our family. Um, I used to babysit most of them. Whenever I went back home, um, I would I would be the babysitter. You know, I, I had so many memories with them. Um, every single one of them had dreams. Every single one of them had a special character. And they all were very cheerful, despite everything they've been living through, you know. Um, children are the reason why I wanted to become a journalist in, in the first place, um, because, you know, usually their voices are those that are not heard and they're unable to articulate what they're living through. And as as a kid myself, when I was a kid, I, I felt that, you know, I felt like the whole world doesn't care about me as a Palestinian kid. And I genuinely think that um, you know, Israel stole my childhood. Israel stole all of my memories from being a kid. You know, Israel stained my childhood. Um, I was 14 years old when I saw people getting cut into pieces in front of my eyes. I was only eight years old when I first experienced terror and, and, and you know, attacks on my school. I remember, I will never forget, um, I was doing my Arabic exam, Arabic final exam. I was in grade three. And um, next to our school, um, there was a very severe bomb and I remember my teachers just you know panicking and and seeing all of the children crying and this was the first aggression in Gaza and right now we're in 2023 and we're seeing you know this is the sixth aggression since um, 2008 and Palestinians in Gaza you know the kids uh, if we're only gonna um, you know Look at the kids, um, every single one of them, more than 90% of Palestinian children are, um, you know, suffering from PTSD, me included, and my brother as well. Um, And most of my relatives, for that matter, most of the the kids in my family and our friends, you know, um, what we've been living through in Gaza did not just start on the 7th of October. This has been my whole life. You know, I grew up with the sound of bombs more than the sound of birds. I grew up, you know, being scared of the sound of uh, airplanes. Till now, I'm in London and there's airplanes a lot in London and I'm still, you know, suffering from severe PTSD that even when the fire alarm goes off, I any loud noise still triggers me. I've been trying to get treatment for my PTSD for the last seven years, and I'm not even close to being, you know, treated from what I've seen and the horrific, um, you know, atrocities that's been committed against me and my people. And every single war, I almost got killed. You know, I just feel very lucky that I'm still alive. But every single Palestinian uh, child in Gaza never felt that, they can be, you know, alive for the next moment or not. Jason, um, we mentioned lots of figures at the start of this programme, and we know it's over 3,000 children killed. The figure may be much higher. 
Um, it's worth bringing up the fact that there have been challenges to those figures. President Biden saying, I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. He went on, I'm sure innocents have been killed. It's the price of waging a war. Can I ask you to weigh in on the figures? Um, because after he said that, the Ministry of Health produced this, which is a list of all those that died, a very detailed list with all of the uh, names of those uh, that have been killed and all of their details. Uh, from your perspective, uh, from, from, from your organisation, Save the Children, what do you make of these official statistics that come from the Ministry of Public Health? Do you think they are accurate? Let's just be clear on that. Yeah. So de facto authorities have been running the health system in Gaza for the last 16 years. And when you look through the previous escalations, which unfortunately there have been many, the figures that have been released by the Ministry of Public Health in, again, de facto authorities in Gaza, ministry officials, when you compare those to the official UN figures that are released, they're pretty much identical. There are slight variations, but again, these are very small in number, but they're pretty much accurate. So when, when we look through, again, historical evidence on what has the ministry been producing in, in previous escalations with what the UN uh, numbers are, there, there is no discrepancy between them. So the figures that, again, are being used are the ones that until now have not shown to be discredited in any way, shape or form. And unfortunately, the previous countless escalations that have taken place in Gaza. Yara, one of the most disturbing things I've heard in recent days, and there is so much disturbing information that we're all consuming, is the fact that families now are splitting their children up and putting them in different places so a whole family doesn't get wiped out. And also that parents are writing children's names on their arms so if they are killed, they can identify them and others are putting identity bracelets on their children. This is shocking. You know, this is not the first time that this is happening. Unfortunately, it is the most brutal, most barbaric attack on Gaza, um, you know, ever. But and and you know, children are li literally more than uh, seventy percent of all the people who have been killed and casualties are children and women. So um, what what's happening is a clear, you know, violation of international law. But this has been my my life. You know, I remember in two thousand and fourteen, my mother is a U staff member, uh, an honorable staff member, and she had to be working to um, help the refugees who are, you know, being displaced and seeking shelter in honorable schools that are supposed to be safe. But as we know, Israel keeps bombing those uh, honorable schools and nowhere in Gaza is actually safe. But even then, my mom took my brother with her in 2014, and I had to stay with my father, even though I was, uh, as a 14-year-old, I was crying. I was like, no, mama, like, you can't, like, I need to come with you. We have to be together as a family. And she said, Yara, if me and Firas, my brother, get killed, you know, you and your dad have to be alive. You know, we have to split you. And, and this is just my story, my family. Complete families are doing the same thing, you know, um, splitting their families in half. Um, and sometimes even if they split the families in half, the whole family is being wiped from the civil registry. You know, so many families have been completely obliterated. Um, only from my family, family, 41 members. And you can imagine, you know, my family is a big family, but you can imagine all of the other families that are smaller. Um, you know, th this writing, the, the children, you know, when I think about it, and when I think back to my childhood, and I relive the trauma that I was living, um, I honestly cannot even put it into words what I felt as a child, you know, I, I 
I didn't even understand what death meant. I didn't understand the destruction. I didn't understand my parents, you know, tried to 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 make me understand what's happening. But, you know, it only was when I was 14 that I realized what, what losses meant. And when I was really, you know, caught in a massacre and I survived by a miracle, that, that's when I realized what it means to be between a life and death situation you know and and so many of these children are having to you know age like you know they're not children anymore they're having you know one of my um children my cousin's children she's the only survivor from the her whole family her three sisters both grandparents both parents were killed hala is only eight years old she's gonna grow up without any member of her family you know her uncles were killed her aunts were killed and Till now, I am unable to talk to her. I don't know what to tell her. I don't know. I don't know how she's feeling. I can never even imagine what she has to go through. You know, her sisters, her whole memories. She's only eight, and she has to live for the rest of her life without her parents and her her sisters. You know, um, and and those pictures are not only heartbreaking, but they're um, as the doctor said. You know, it, it is a stain on our consciousness, and it is a stain on on humanity for letting this continue for more than like you know 20 days it's not like you know one massacre that has been committed in one day and we could have stopped it no israel continues to massacre children that the figures are continuing to increase we're seeing horrific horrific accounts from journalists on the ground that are risking their own lives to produce these pictures these graphic pictures of children you know videos that not only break hearts like i am literally unable to sleep since aggression started i barely sleep three hours a day because of those pictures that haunt me and the world is just watching you know biden is there giving the green light to to israel to continue what they're doing massacring massacring children you know and i, I just i'm shocked you know I, I i never thought i genuinely thought you know our world can't be this horrible but every single palestinian right now feels like this is not our world you know we we i, I don't know well, let me let me bring in Tanya on this uh, because we've talked about the bombardment, but of course the other factor here is the aid not getting in, very limited aid, and the specific that they're not allowing in the Israelis is fuel. From your perspective as a doctor, how important is fuel for those hospitals, for keeping the hospitals running, for running things like ventilators and incubators for newborn babies? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I just want to address a couple of things that were were shared in the last few minutes um, by my co-speakers today. You know, just in reference to what Yada was saying earlier, and to put things in context for our viewers, a child of age 11 today would have lived through four major bombardments up until this point. And then in reference to something else um, that we were just discussing, you know, there's there's this deep sense of being alone by Gazans and Palestinians in general that I've spoken to. So colleagues that I have in the field in Gaza who have sent messages saying, you know, we, we feel like two days ago, one of my colleagues sent us a message to say, we feel like the whole world has come together to eliminate us and nobody's listening to us and the world is deaf to our suffering. And I think, you know, First of all, I think that should be uh, very alarming to the people listening to this program today, but I also think it's reflective of, of a particular type of, of, of psychological trauma, of feeling completely isolated and feeling like the world is, is um, 
voluntarily silent to your pain and suffering. Uh, one of my colleagues today said uh, in Gaza said the whole world is uh, watching us getting get, uh, getting massacred on TV and su just silently watching. Um, and so, just uh, in reference to the the uh, number question that you provided to uh, Jason from Save the Children, you know, I think kind of discrediting the deaths is part of that that dehumanization. Um, so I just wanted to make that point and thank you for allowing me the opportunity to do uh, it. Yeah, and, 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 um, and, and, and Tanya, on, on the specifics of not allowing um, fuel in as a doctor, how is yeah. that going to impact the medical situation on the ground? So just, just for context, fuel operates everything from the ambulances that go to collect people from under the rubble, to go pick up uh, pregnant women who are delivering or or others who are having heart attacks. You know, it, it's it's we rely on our paramedic services in normal times. So you can imagine in times of crisis like this, how important having fuel for that is. Fuel is needed to bring the aid, the very little aid that is coming in um, to the locations it's needed to be delivered to. And then on a hospital level, fuel operates just about, or electricity actually, um, more accurately, operates just about everything in my subspecialty, which is uh, critical care medicine, from ventilators to monitors to infusion pumps. And without those things, you cannot run an intensive care unit. And without those things, patients who are without electricity, and I want to make the distinguish, distinction between fuel and electricity because the electricity supply has been cut off of Gaza Strip and fuel is really what's needed to operate the generators, which in uh, pre-October 7th times are the backup system for the hospital's electricity. So it would be needed to operate ventilators. If a patient is dependent on a ventilator, which many patients in intensive care are, and you cannot operate the ventilator or suddenly you run out of fuel, those patients will die. It is a death sentence. They are unable to breathe, they suffocate, they die. The same is true for patients who are dependent on dialysis. There's over a, over a thousand patients who are dependent on, on dialysis. And if we cannot operate the dial dialysis machines, those patients unfortunately will die. The same is true for neonatal units where newborn babies are, are, um, are taken care of. And, Newborn babies are often in incubators. They're often on breathing machines. All of these things require electricity. And the second the generators can no longer provide that electricity because the fuel has run out, those newborn premature babies will die. And we know there are more than 130 of them. And so it's essentially a lack of fuel is an ultimate death sentence on multiple levels. And I've sort of talked about the hospital intensive care level of things, but there's also you know, bakeries have closed down because they don't have fuel to operate the bakeries and, and bakeries are needed to provide fuel. fuel. Water, water desalination plants cannot function because again, they need electricity to desalinate the water. So even Gaza's internal in abilities to, to provide drinking water are, are stifled. So let, me bring, let, me bring in, let me bring in Jason now on this, because the other additional factor to all of this is that there are people on the move everywhere in Gaza, in part because Israel is threatening them, telling them they have to move, but also they're trying to find somewhere safe, and clearly there is no safe place 
in Gaza. I looked at some of the UN statistics. They said about a million people displaced include 4,750 pregnant women, 390 postnatal cases requiring medical attention, and the UN saying they're increasingly identifying acute respiratory and diarrhoea among children under five. Tell us about not those in hospital, but those that aren't under medical care and the ordeal they're facing, Jason. Absolutely. This is it. There's been more, we estimate there's about 1.4 million people that have fled their homes. Now they're sheltering wherever they can in schools, UN facilities, public buildings, hospitals. The infrastructure that people are moving to in the south and those even that remained in the north cannot cope with the numbers of people. There are 650,000, that's a huge amount of people trying to shelter in 150 shelters in the south that was not built for that capacity. Many of the shelters are hosting up to four times as many people as they were built for. That means there's no food, inadequate supplies of food, inadequate supplies of water, and bathroom facilities. In one center, there is 16 bathrooms for about 25,000 people. And there's, not, there's no water, so you can't flush. There's no water to maintain hygiene practices. There's no water to drink. Again, I want to reiterate, fuel is critical to ensure that the desalination plants work, that the pumps are working to actually bring up the groundwater. Civilians and children are now resorting to drinking brackish water or saline water because there's not enough fresh water for them to drink. Now, even the journey to the south, I mean, Many people are still remaining in the north because it has not been safe for them to move. Despite the evacuation orders to move to the south, the journey to the south was perilous. My own teams and their families had to flee from their homes in the north to take shelter in the south. Okay, Tanya, Tanya, um, we had a warning in recent hours from the head of UNRWA, that's the UN agency that deals with Palestinians, the Commissioner General, Philippe Lazzarini, And he's now saying things could get even worse. He says there is a risk of serious disease and starvation. That is certainly true. I think you have you have thousands of people sheltering, as Jason was saying, in in environments that are meant for a very small fraction of that number sharing the same uh, lavatories. Uh, and drinking unhygienic water. We already know that there's been a spike in diarrheal disease illness amongst children um, in in the Gaza Strip. Uh, We don't have reports of cholera yet, but uh, an outbreak of cholera in these sort of dense settings would be catastrophic. And and, uh, unfortunately, in these circumstances, is, is not uncommon at all. Um, so yeah, I think there, there, we we know there's been an an, an uptick in in chickenpox and other contagious diseases, um, as a as a consequence of people living in very close proximity, sheltering all together in these types of settings. We're coming near the end of the program, and I'd like to give the last word to Yara. Um, Yara, um, given what we're hearing, this desperate stories about the plight of people in Gaza and particularly children in Gaza. If you were able to speak to President Biden right now on behalf of the children in Gaza, what would you tell the President of the United States right now? 
Well, I'll certainly start by saying that I'm shocked by your actions, you know, that you have blood in your hands. You are literally not only aiding a genocide and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, but most of them are children and that those children will never forgive you. You know, these children are becoming, you know, orphans. They're either being killed. They're either, you know, but but. Even if we think this is there is an immediate ceasefire, which you have as a president, you have such a responsibility as a world leader and a leader, you know, not only um, a world leader, but also the president of one of the, you know, the strongest um, and, and more power, most powerful countries in the world. You have a responsibility, you know, with all of your uh, freedom of speech things and your, your all the, the rights and, and how you talk about democracy as a democracy, you play you're a democracy how are you aiding a genocide of innocent palestinian children you know even if you call for a ceasefire which you've been objecting and you've been vetoing a, a, a ceasefire for for palestinians in gaza um you know even if there is a ceasefire these children their lives you know it's scarred forever and i'm one of those children i was once a child i've lived through these things i've lost so many people from my family i didn't even see my family for six years even when i left gaza it's not like this is a new situation you know All all of these lives, all of these lives, all of these dreams, you're responsible for for them, for these things. You know, you're doing exactly what Israel is doing, you know. And Yara, Yara, I, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time. This was a most depressing conversation, but thanks so much to our panel for joining us. Tanya Haj Hassan, Jason uh, Lee, Yara Eid. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Victoria Gatenby, Abla Klar and Gemma Harries. Studio sound was by Shuraj Shankar. The programme was edited by Ahmed Al-Faha, Lynn Nguyen, Vanessa Connelly and Joe DeFries. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening and tune in on Saturday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, we remember the family of Wa'il al-Dahdu, and talk about what it means to be a journalist today in Gaza. That's The Take from Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.